Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. If you're able, please stand for the reading of Scripture. We're going to be reading from Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I'll invite Billy up. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the Sunday, for the cool, crisp air, for the beautiful mountains as the season transitions. Dear Lord, I know that we're all busy. We're all thinking about the Christmas that, that, that's to come and all the things to do and the trees to put up and the gifts to wrap. Dear Lord, just slow our minds, open our hearts, and allow the word that you've given Billy to come into us. Allow it to resonate with us and for us to take it out into the world with you. Thank you for everything you've given us. In your name I pray. Amen. we go. Well, good morning, everyone. If you're like me, you're excited about Christmas. We already, we got our Christmas tree up last week. So like, that's a Hannah thing, not a me thing. Um, so I will say this, if you have the book, Every Moment Holy, I know not everyone may know what that book is. It's a book about just kind of prayers for everyday moments. There's one in there for setting up a Christmas tree. It's amazing. So pro tip, use that really good stuff. Um, so here's what I want you to do as we come to Ecclesiastes. We're going to wrap up this morning before we enter into the season of Advent. I want you to think back to a time in your life when you were on a quest for something, a journey for something, something that you thought was the key to happiness. Now for me, as crazy and, de- and delusional as it may seem, it was church planning. That's right. I thought, you know, this whole thing was the key. So for years, for about nine years, we served at uh, our sending church in Missouri. I grew up here, moved to Missouri, went to school out there, connected with the local church, and then set my heart on church planting. And that was it for me. And I remember we were preparing for Acts 29 assessment. And maybe you've never heard of Acts 29. You don't know what that is, so I will enlighten you. Acts 29 is our church planting network. And they have one of the most rigorous, grueling assessment processes in the country. And so it's essentially you go through the process of a three-day conference in which you preach to a group of men who tear you apart and tell you all the terrible things about your sermon, but also a couple good things. And then also you do lots of different uh, questions, lots of interviews, Lots of different, like, challenging moments where we'll get together and they'll give you, hey, here's a scenario. How would you handle it? And so we did this for three days, right, having our life examined, being kind of 
just go run through the ringer, really, to, to see, like, are you guys healthy? Is church planning a good idea? Is this what you want? And so we get through that process. We get our assessment done. We feel good. We feel confident. We start kind of gathering, building momentum. We start meeting finally on Sunday mornings, and then, boom, March 2020 happens, and the world stopped. And I thought, wait a second. No, no, this was supposed to be like, this was it. This was like where we were going. This is what we were doing. I was convinced, you know, once I get through assessment, once we, you know, we, we get through the core team phase and we get this church going, everything's just going to, it's going to be amazing. And I thought I would be complete, satisfied, fulfilled, which I know is foolish. Because when I finally got there, when I finally had it in my hands, it fell through my hands like sand. And I felt a surprising sense of emptiness. It was like reaching the top of a mountain only to find it's just a plateau. There's no grand vista that I was hoping for. God in his kindness showed me that success isn't in my accomplishments. It's in Christ's finished work. So what's my role? What's your role? What's this? The preacher tells us. Fear God and keep his commandments. We've been looking at King Solomon and Ecclesiastes, who had everything, wisdom, wealth, power. Yet, he says it's all vanity of vanity. He says it's hevel, it's breath. It's here, you can see it, but you can't grasp it. It's gone. Ecclesiastes shows us a really hard truth, and it's this, that without God, life is an empty shell. If we look at life, we see good people getting the short end of the stick while the bad guys get the victory lap. Plans fall apart. Life always finds a way to disappoint us. And then the inevitable end of it all, death. And no amount of hard work, no wealth, no wisdom can outmaneuver it, right? You can get cryogenically frozen, but you're still dead, right? Without God, Solomon concludes everything is hevel. Everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. Today we're going to wrap up our journey through Ecclesiastes. I know there's some sighs of relief from some of you. We hit the grand finale in this epilogue. It's really kind of the preacher's mic drop moment. After all of his searching, his conclusion is this startlingly simple yet profound statement. And it's our big idea this morning. Here it is. Fear God, keep his commandments. Fear God, Keep his commandments. That's it. Now, these aren't just words. They are a compass for our entire existence. So if you have a Bible, grab it, flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to camp out in these last few verses. We're going to see that it's not just this epilogue. It's really an essence of, of Solomon's wisdom, his final declaration, this distilled truth from a life spent in the relentless pursuit of meaning. So let's go to verse 9, and let's see first that we should be anchored in God's word and wisdom. First, anchored in God's word and wisdom. Verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, just kind of as an aside, I know this reads like 
hey, is this someone else editing the preacher and just kind of making comments on it? And, and maybe that's the case. I tend to believe it's Solomon reflecting back and looking over it and making his final point. But regardless, there is so much power in these words for us. See, Solomon's been using wisdom throughout the book of Ecclesiastes to guide us to this point. And he knows how difficult these passages are. There's been some pretty heavy, stark things that we've read as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes. And he compares these statements to goads. So what's a goad, right? Well, think of it kind of like a a spiritual cattle prod. If you read that and you're wondering what it is, it's a sharp stick that's used by shepherds to keep their sheep on track. I don't know if you've ever spent time with sheep, but they're really dumb. Okay, so I remember I went with my friend Rich uh, up to Wisconsin, and he said, hey, I've got this farm that I grew up on. I can't wait for you to go, and I'm excited because I've, like, you know, it's sheep. They're, look at them. They're cute. You know, they're woolly, and they are absolute fools, right? The second the shepherd comes, they all just run and fall over each other, and they can't even get to where they're going, and so they have to use this instrument called a goad to poke them to get them to go where they need to go. It's a nudge. It's a bit of discomfort, to steer them in the right direction. It's not about harming, it's about guiding. And just like these words of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, they're there to prod us, to keep us on the path of truth. Now, here's the thing about a goat. It might sting a little bit, but they're meant to, again, keep us walking in the right paths, just like a shepherd guiding his flock. And that's what this book has done, right? It's goading us. God's wisdom, often it disrupts our comfortable views, our neatly packaged beliefs. Wisdom doesn't just support what we already think. It completely changes our view. This is the Bible at work because the Bible is not just a book of comforting words. It's a living, piercing testimony of God's truth. It confronts us. It challenges us. It challenges our deeply held notions. It exposes the areas where we're misaligned in our lives with God's perfect will. And so when the word confronts us, it can often be unsettling. But it is ultimately an invitation to realignment, to renewal in Christ. I think about the Apostle Paul. Paul is this striking example of God's transformative power. Here's a guy who was literally persecuting the church, traveling around, dragging people into judgment, actively seeking to murder Christians. Yet in a moment of sovereign intervention, the risen Jesus Christ confronts him. And Paul talks about this in Acts 26. He says this blinding light pops up. There's this voice from heaven challenging his resistance to God's truth. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. In this moment, we see a vivid picture of God's sovereignty at work, not only in Paul's life, but in the wider narrative of redemption. God's word is like the goads, again, used by the shepherd to guide, to correct, to redirect us. It's a divine tool. It's not meant to cause us harm, but to lead us to repentance, to lead us to life in Christ. It's a reminder, friends, that our journey with God isn't about him getting on track with our plans, but us aligning ourselves with his sovereign plan. So if today God's word is pricking your conscience. If God's revealing areas of your life that are not surrendered to him, don't resist. Friends, this is the Holy Spirit at work. 
If your life doesn't match the gospel's call, then pay attention to God's direction. There was a park ranger at Yellowstone National Park. He was leading a group of hikers to a fire lookout. And the ranger was so intent on telling the hikers about everything they were seeing, the flowers, the animals, that he was getting really annoyed because his two-way radio kept going off. And so he turned it off. As the group neared the tower, the ranger was met by a nearly breathless lookout who rushed them inside and asked them, why haven't you been listening to your radio? Why haven't you responded to my messages? A grizzly bear had been stalking the group and the authorities were trying to warn him of the danger. Here's the thing, friends. We too often ignore God's word. Don't ignore the words goading. Humility before God's word. It's not just an act of obedience. It's an act of worship. Acknowledging God's authority, his grace, his purpose in our life. We can't just read the Bible and nod in agreement, right? We can't just throw on our Bible app, throw it on 2X as we drive to work and half listen to it while we're thinking about what we're going to do for lunch. No, friends, we need to pray that our heart and our mind would be open to God's word so that we're transformed by it. The transformation of God's word, it's the heart of the gospel. It's a life turned from sin and self to Jesus. It's in bowing to his word, heeding his instruction, that we find true life, a life that's marked by grace, redeemed by Christ, and aligned with God's eternal purposes. Here's a verse for all of us to consider. 2 Timothy 3.16. Speaking on scripture, we read this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. God's word is more than comforting verses and ancient stories. It is like, again, a spiritual cattle prod moving us to the right path. If God's word is not occasionally stepping on your toes, if it's not challenging your ideas or calling out your lifestyle, then you're missing out on a big part of its power. When you feel that goading, when you feel that push, that nudge, that conviction from the Spirit under God's word, don't push back. Friends, that's God loving you, guiding you, nudging you towards abundant life. Embrace it with joy. Trust that his way is the best way. Now Solomon talks about the words of the wise being like goads, but he doesn't stop there. He says that they're also like nails, firmly fixed. So think of it like a tent peg. If you've ever been camping and not pegged your tent down properly, it's a problem, right? I was talking to Michael about how he went camping on the beach and learned pretty quickly that it's very windy, right? And not too long after he was there, the tent's flapping around. It's pretty troublesome, right? A strong wind comes. If your tent is not anchored, whoosh, there goes your shelter. But when we place our tent firmly, it gives it stability. God's word does the same for our lives. It can be the anchor that holds us steady. It can be the north star that guides you through life's choppy seas. It's the constant presence helping you see things clearly about God, about yourself and the world. And let's get real for a moment about our own sin. Because we all have these moments, don't we? These moments where we have these, these slip-ups, these, these thoughts, these words, these actions that we wish we could take back. 
When you're wrestling with that, feeling the weight of your mistakes, of your sin, of your brokenness, and those doubts start to creep in, do you have God's word firmly fixed in your heart and in your mind? See, it's like that nail, that stake, firmly fixed to help you navigate through life's storms. Have you ever caught yourself wondering, can God really love someone like me? Or maybe, am I just playing a, a game? Am I, is this just a spiritual charade? When these doubts come in, when they creep in, especially, friends, when we mess up, when we sin, we need to have God's word as our anchor, as that tent peg in shaky ground. When these doubts swirl, things come to mind like Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Do you know that God justifies the ungodly? So if you're feeling ungodly, guess what? You're exactly who God is looking to justify. What about Romans 8, 1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, I've said this before. You often hear two voices. One is the voice of condemnation. The voice that says, you're a failure. You don't do enough. You should know better. I mean, how long have you been a Christian? You're still struggling with this? Man, that's terrible. How could you do that? You're a terrible mother. You would never, I can't believe you would talk to your children that way. You're never going to own up. You're never going to measure up. When you hear that, you can be assured that that's the voice of the enemy. That's a lie with the hiss of hell. Because that's not the voice of the Spirit. Again, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, conviction says, I've called you mine. You belong to me. You are my son. You are my daughter. Live that way. What voice will we listen to if we don't submit ourselves to the word of God and we don't listen to what it says, if we don't hold it in our hearts, if we don't memorize it, cherish it, live by it, then we will drown ourselves in sorrow through the voice of condemnation. Your mistakes, Jesus took them on. What is your part in the picture? Keep trusting him. Get up Turn from your sin and walk with Jesus. That's how God, he he reorients us with his word. He gives us stability. And these wise words, they're not just, again, they're not motivational quotes. We're not talking about bumper sticker truisms. We're talking about abiding, living, active word. It's a lifeline. It spurs us into action. It anchors our thoughts. And here's the key. This is the kicker. They all come from one shepherd. Look at the end of verse 11. They are given by one shepherd. It's capital S here. This is a nod to Jesus Christ, the promised son of David, the eternal king. I mean, we just sang Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. That's who we're talking about. There was a gathering many years ago a big party, and, and while they were there, there was this renowned English actor who was asked, recite something for the guests. And so everyone's throwing out requests, you know, oh, say this from Hamlet or, or do this. And an old clergyman asked him to recite the 23rd Psalm. And the actor agreed. He said, I'll do it on one condition, that you would recite it too. And the pastor was surprised but willing. 
So this actor recites the psalm with this perfect voice, this, this intonation that captivates everyone in the room. And his performance was met with this enthusiastic applause from the party. Then the old preacher with his ordinary voice and his simple delivery recites the same song. And his rendition didn't win any applause, but it left not a single dry eye in the room as it touched everyone deeply to their heart. And the actor spoke up, visibly moved. And he said, I asked him to speak because I know the psalm, but this man knows the shepherd. The wisdom in the Bible, friends, it's not just good advice. It's God's word breathed out for our benefit. Yes, it comes from a variety of human pens, but it's all God's voice, all his spirit guiding. So are you listening to the shepherd? His word is reliable. It has authority. Ecclesiastes gives us this caution. It says, beware of anything beyond these. It's not saying, hey, ditch all other books. No way. Obviously, we have books that we love but it's a reminder to weigh everything against the truth of God's word. In a world that's overflowing with information, with endless books, with endless theories, it's very easy to get lost. So in this tangled and broken world, as we see all the joys, the sorrows, remember to keep your eyes fixed on the one true source of eternal life, on Jesus Christ. Hope in him. Trust in him. Solomon drives it home in verses 9 through 12 that wisdom's words are good. They're solid gold. But then he shifts in verses 13 and 14 and drops this ultimate truth bomb that life is all about God. Again, it circles back to him. And the big takeaway, the sum of all things, it's stunningly simple yet profound. Let's see second, the call to fear God and keep his commandments. Look at verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. This call to fear God is hard for us, right? It's not about trembling in terror. It's about this deep, reverent awe, a humble recognition of who God really is. It's about bowing, yes, in respect to the ultimate sovereign king of the ages, acknowledging his greatness is unmatched. If your idea of God doesn't stir a sense of awe, maybe it's time to expand your vision of him. Because if you notice this in the Bible, wherever God shows up, people hit the deck. They are in awe. Whether it's on Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning or on the mount of transfiguration surrounded by a blinding cloud god's presence demands respect reverence it is a natural reaction to the overwhelming revelation of who he is so what does this mean for us because it feels so strange right when we talk about what jesus welcomes us invites us we have this kind of precious moments picture this buddy jesus he's just winking and pointing at us like that's not the picture that scripture gives us you may have heard this before but i think it's by far the most helpful understanding on the fear of god in the chronicles of narnia this allegory by c.s lewis if you haven't read it 
It's amazing. Read it. If you have kids, please read it with them. It's so good. The author has these two sisters, Susan and Lucy, getting ready to meet Aslan the lion, who represents Christ. Two talking animals, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, prepare the children for the encounter. This is what we read. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It means living in that awe and that reverence, aligning our lives with his command, orienting our actions and decisions around his will. You see, Lucy knew that Aslan, when she stood before him, could decimate her with a swipe of his paw. But she also knew that he was good. Living with a fear of the Lord means remembering the might and the majesty of our God and knowing that he is good. Oswald Chambers says it beautifully. He says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. It's about taking his words to heart and living them out day by day. That's the essence of fearing God and keeping his commandments. It's a life fully tuned to his frequency, harmonizing with his heart. So let me ask the question, do you keep his commandments? Do you keep the commandments? Do you desire to honor him with the whole of your life? Here's a really practical step. Here's where we started this calendar year. And I think it's fitting that we sum up the year here. Dive into the Ten Commandments. Don't just read them. Let them sink into your soul. Memorize them. Meditate on them. And like Jesus does in his Sermon on the Mount, grasp their deeper meaning. Think about it. How often do you actually consider God's commandments? Do you ever ponder the fact that God has expectations of you? You see, knowing and understanding these commandments, it's like getting a blueprint of what God desires for your life. Martin Luther, the reformer back in the 16th century, was just so blown away by the Ten Commandments that he had this eye-opening moment. He realized that the Ten Commandments were not just rules. They weren't just regulations, that they were this daily touchstone, this, this guide for abundant life. And so he wrote a letter to his barber saying that he would turn the commandments into a prayer, reflecting on God's expectations, his own shortcomings, and his desperate need for grace. I think that's not a bad habit to pick up, right? To daily align our lives with what God asks of us. I mean, think about this. A person who truly fears God and keeps his commandments, that person would be someone who is delightful, wonderful, joyfully persevering as a follower of Jesus. To fear God, friends, is to worship him. And Jesus makes it clear. He says this in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. So fearing God starts with embracing Jesus. 
And think about this. You can't even get past the first commandment without encountering Jesus. How can you put no other gods before him if you're not approaching him the way that he's revealed himself in Christ? To truly honor the first commandment, you must bow to Jesus as Lord. Fearing and obeying his commandments, they're they're two sides of the same coin. One is your mindset, your heart's posture, and the other is how you live each day. See, if you genuinely fear God, you will naturally keep his commandments. And if you're not keeping them, it's time to ask, do I truly fear the Lord? This is exactly what Paul is getting at in Romans 3 as he lays out this stark picture of sin and our inherent need for righteousness. See, in Romans 3, he says that no one is righteous, not one. And he paints a vivid picture in Romans that no one understands, no one seeks God on their own, that our world is spinning in chaos, it's void of goodness, It's like lawlessness unleashed. It's a stark refusal to follow God's commandments. And what's the root cause? What's a lack of fear? It's a lack of reverence for our creator. It's not just about actions. It's about our mindset. It's about how we even see God. And the preacher brings us to this crucial point. We're supposed to fear God, to revere him, not to treat him like an afterthought in our lives. We're to take his commandments to heart. We're to live in obedience. And if that's not where you're at, friends, then now is the moment. It's time to own up to your shortcomings, to turn away from your sin, to step into humble obedience to the Creator. It's not just about doing the right things. No, friends, it's about realigning your very existence with His will. Solomon doesn't just stop at the what, he gives us the why. See, it's not just about our duty, it's about our whole being. Literally, it's about the sum and substance of mankind. Charles Bridges puts it brilliantly, talking about the fear of God and keeping his commandments. He says that it is his whole happiness and business, the total sum of all that concerns him, all that God requires of him, all that the Savior enjoins, all that the Holy Spirit teaches and works in him. Here's what it means. It means we were made to worship and obey. We were made to worship and obey. It's the entirety of our existence. Everything we were made to be, all that we were meant to experience, our journey with God, it's not about climbing a ladder to earn his acceptance. I think we can think of it more like a railroad track, a path laid out for us to follow, guided by his grace through Jesus. The commandments are not steps to climb. They're tracks to follow, leading us to abundant life a life lived in devotion to Christ. Fear God, keep his commandments. This isn't just good advice, it's why we're here. You will never truly live, you will never really understand who God is until you align yourself with this fundamental truth. I mean, this is what prompted Augustine, one of the early church fathers, to declare in his confessions, O God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. It's a powerful realization that we are designed to find our peace, to find our purpose in God. So are you at rest with your creator? Or are you resisting, kicking against those goads, uncomfortable with the idea that God is in charge of every aspect of your life? That he's calling you to humble submission under his lordship. 
He's not a supreme dictator wanting you to measure up and, and fit a mold and be a robot. He is a good father who wants abundant life for you. This is the essence of our existence, the core of our journey. But the preacher has one final word for us. And so let's see briefly and finally, third, the day of judgment. The day of judgment. Verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Judgment day is on the horizon. Jesus himself speaks of this in Matthew 12 saying that we will all have to account for every word that we've ever spoken. And Paul echoes this in Romans 2, talking about a day when God will judge our secret thoughts. Here is what the enemy whispers while you read through Ecclesiastes. Nothing matters because death is the end. But God's word flips the script and says everything matters precisely because death is not the end, that there is a coming day of judgment. Throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon explores life under the sun, seeking meaning in wealth and power and pleasure and wisdom. And yet every single pursuit under the sun leads back to the same haunting question. Is this all there is? Is this it? See, without God, our actions, our very lives, they just seem inconsequential. I mean, it doesn't matter what we do. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But when Solomon looks above the sun and sees God in the picture, he realizes that every action, every word, every hidden thought takes on eternal significance. And friends, this is a really sobering thought. If there is a God, then he will judge the world including our most casual words and our deepest secrets. Everything that we do echoes into eternity. That is the profound truth that we are facing. And on that day, that incredible, inevitable day of judgment, we'll all see just how much every action, every word, every thought has mattered. And it's mattered eternally. On that day, the way that you spoke to your family, the respect that you showed or didn't show to your parents, how you treated your neighbor, every text message you sent, every social media tirade you went on, all of it will be laid bare. The way you used your time, whether you squandered it or used it wisely, how you handled your finances, every bit of it carries eternal weight. That day will reveal if you were honest in your dealings at work. If you're truthful on your taxes, it will show the significance of those long nights parents have spent comforting their children. It will highlight how you honored the Lord's day, what you truly thought about God. It will uncover whether you harbored resentment or you worked tirelessly towards reconciliation, showcasing the power of the gospel in your life. Even the effort you put into your schoolwork, your attitude towards your teachers, it all matters. And Ecclesiastes drives this home. Our daily actions, our moment-to-moment choices, they're not just passing occurrences, that they are etched into the fabric of eternity because the God who created us, who sees every secret, has set a day to judge us by his righteous standards. So this leaves me and you with a pressing question. What will your plea be on that day?
What will your plea be on that day? In the time of the pioneers, when there was this unstoppable burn on a prairie, what they would do is they would light a controlled burn around them. And it created a safe zone because the fire couldn't burn what was already charred. And so you could picture this raging fire coming towards them, but they could stand safely in the already burned area, unharmed by the flames that were encircling them. When the judgment of God comes, there is one spot that is safe. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the wrath of God was poured out on Calvary. There, the Son of God took the wrath that should have fallen on us. Now, if we take our stand by the cross, we are safe for time and eternity. So how will you stand before God? Will you have to account for every hidden thought, every word, every deed on your own without an advocate? Will you face the reality of your sin? Will you stand before God's judgment with no one to take your place? Friends, this isn't just a hypothetical scenario. This isn't just a, a hellfire brimstone sermon. This is a reality that scripture says we must prepare for. But here's the game changer for those of us who are in Christ. We have an advocate. Jesus stepped into the picture to rescue us from the brink of eternal judgment. See, Jesus came and flawlessly did everything that God requires. He revered God. He followed his commandments. He lived out the perfect life towards God. He acted righteously every single moment. And then in a profound act of love, Jesus, sinless as he was, embraced death under God's judgment. And he did this for people like us. But Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Jesus rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And do you know what he's doing there? He is pleading for you. Do you realize that? I mean, have you ever just driven around and been like, I'm not going to hell? I don't think many of us do. I think we're so numb and so blinded by foolish, empty things. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes is grabbing you by your shirt, looking you in your eyes and saying, you will die. You will. So will you trust in Jesus? Or will you live foolishly, denying the reality that you will die, the inevitability of your death, assuming that all these things that really matter will matter a hundred years from now, because I guarantee you they won't. But one day, you will stand before God. And will Jesus stand in front of you, turning away the wrath? You see, by turning away from our sin, by bowing to Jesus Christ as Lord and pleading for his mercy. That's how we stand assured. That's how on the day of judgment, as Ecclesiastes warns us, we won't be alone. No, Jesus will stand in our place. He will say, this one is mine. He belongs to me. We'll be clothed in his righteousness. And God won't look at you and see all of your brokenness, all of your failures, all of your emptiness. He will see his perfect holy son. Imagine facing eternity without a savior, without someone who's met every demand God could place on us. On that day, Jesus will be there affirming, this one is mine. Do you know Christ in this way? If not, understand this. He brought you here today to hear this message. 
Trust in him. It's not about rituals or magic. It's about embracing the truth, taking God at his word, and acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Will you trust Jesus Christ today? He is ready to welcome you. This is our God, our Lord, our salvation. We're going to gather at the Lord's table in a moment. We'll celebrate this astonishing reality that the God who demands righteousness, the God before whom we live in fear and obedience, is also the God of overwhelming grace and mercy. That he gave his son to accomplish what we never could. And together we'll rejoice in all that Jesus is and everything that he has done for us. Today, in just a moment as we close, it's kind of two different groups of people I'm talking to this morning. There are those who trust Christ and those who don't. If you trust in Jesus this morning, would you see that the gospel has implications? That the evidence of your faith is your obedience? We went through this in James so much. It's not that we earn salvation by our good works. It's that because we've been saved, we delight to do good things. I love my son because he's my son. No one has to ask me to do that. It just is natural for me. If we love the Lord, if we have been renewed by him, if our hearts have been awakened by him, then we will delight to love him and to obey him. Will we do it perfectly? Nope. (laughs) Read Romans 7. We won't. But God welcomes us. Friends, here's my challenge for you this morning. Really simply, repent of sin and run to Jesus. You don't have to do this perfectly. The prodigal son didn't come back to the father with a penitent heart. He came back because he was hungry. You don't have to do it perfectly. Just come back to the father. For those of you who don't know Jesus, I know how intense this sounds. But the preacher is serious because he knows that you're gonna look for meaning the rest, the early part of Ecclesiastes 12 that we didn't do because I'm ready to do Advent. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's because he says that the time to acknowledge God is when you're young. And that's because Solomon looks back on his life and sees that God blessed him with wisdom and then he squandered it on foolish things. If you don't know Jesus this morning, we're gonna have folks right back in the foyer If you're struggling with sin, if you do trust in Jesus, or if you don't know Jesus, we're back there to pray with you, to talk with you, to encourage you. Don't delay. Time is now. Christ is king. Four questions for us. First, how often do I reflect on God's commandments in my daily decisions? Are there areas of my life where I need to align more closely with these commandments? Question two. When was the last time I felt challenged or goaded by something I read in the Bible? How did I respond to that feeling? Third, how does the idea of a judgment day impact my daily actions and decisions? Do I live with an eternal perspective? And fourth, do I truly understand and embrace Jesus as my advocate and savior? How does this belief shape my life and choices. We'll put all four up there for you guys. Let's pray together. Holy God, you are so good that you would have us stand safely
in your arms. You are the God who could speak and we would cease to be. But you don't speak words of condemnation. You speak words of hope and life. Throughout your word, we are shown over and over again and again that you are good and gracious. That you're slow to anger. You're merciful. You are abounding in steadfast love. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would enlighten our hearts to see the areas, God, that we have stepped away from your goodness, the ways that we have stepped away from the hope that we have in you, the ways, Lord, that we are not trusting in you, that we would, Lord, repent of those things and come back to life and life eternal in you. Father, I pray for those this morning who do not know you. Would you awaken hearts? Would you regenerate hearts this morning? Would you save sinners? Would you bring them, Lord, into the fold, showing them your love, your compassion, and your grace? Would you do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, we pray. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.